Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Oh, well, welcome to all our first movers around the globe. Great to have you with us for a momentum-filled Monday on the program just ahead this hour, Hillary's fury, the fierce storm weakening overnight, but still bringing record rainfall to the parched southwest. Millions remain under flash flood warnings. One person has lost their life in Mexico, where the storm made landfall on Sunday. The very latest on Hillary's expected path coming up. Plus, Russia's warning. Moscow says Denmark and the Netherlands risk escalating the Ukraine conflict with their promises to send F-16 fighter jets to Kyiv. Ukraine's President Zelensky hailing the move as historic, quote, during a visit to Denmark. A live report ahead from Ukraine and Beijing's blues. The Chinese central bank making another underwhelming cut in interest rates, far smaller than investors hoped given the increasing challenges facing the country's property sector and the steady drumbeat of weak economic data too. That disappointment reflected in the performance of Chinese stocks during Monday's session. As you can see there, the Hang Seng dropping almost 2%, steep losses for the Shanghai composite as well. We'll take a closer look at China's credit and growth crisis and the ways to address it later in the programme with Peking University finance professor Michael Pettis. A brighter picture in the meantime in the United States and Europe. Wall Street set to bounce after a losing week, the third in fact, straight week of losses for the S&P and the Nasdaq as rising bond yields hurt sentiment. European shares, though, as you can see for now, in the green. A lot riding once again on Powell's pronouncements. The U.S. central bank chair delivering a closely watched policy address on Friday at the Fed's annual symposium in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Lots to get to, as always, this Monday, but we do begin in the U.S. southwest. And Tropical Storm Hillary turning desert towns into rivers as it brings historic rain levels across the region. Even though the storm has weakened, as I mentioned, to a post-tropical cyclone, the threat far from over. Forecasters warning there could be more mudslides and life-threatening floods throughout the day. As Stephanie Elam reports. This morning, Palm Springs is under a local emergency order as heavy rain from Hillary is causing dangerous flood conditions and prompting at least three swift water rescues. We're asking residents to stay inside, stay where they are. The mayor's warning is because of a situation like this. A pickup truck stuck in the middle of a street, surrounded by deep, rushing floodwaters. The driver was not injured, but the California Highway Patrol closed the road to prevent others from crossing. Those floodwaters so powerful, 
A refrigerator was seen floating away in them. This drone video taken over a nearby neighborhood where the flooding has nearly covered an entire golf course. One homeowner says he's never seen anything like it in the Coachella Valley. Within 24 hours, it's turned into a torrential storm. Between hole number 13 and hole number 16, it's, it's virtually six feet thick. The conditions there also creating a dangerous situation for drivers, including a fire truck forced to turn around due to rising waters. Ahead of the storm, the Palm Springs mayor says the city prepared and distributed 60,000 sandbags, as well as cleared storm drains. Even an inch or two of rain in the desert can cause damage. All right, take a look at this. The road totally covered up, but it's also completely socked in on this other side of the road. I mean, look, ooh, I'm barely touching the bottom there. State officials say some desert regions, like Palm Springs, could double their yearly amount of water in just one day from Hillary. Overnight, officials in Ventura County searched by helicopter and on the ground for a couple of people believed to be trapped by floodwaters from the Santa Clara River. Two people eventually walked out of the flooded area, assisted by crews. Officials urging everyone to stay out of river bottoms and canals. Whoa. And this was the scene Sunday in Wrightwood, about 77 miles northeast of Los Angeles. Huge gushes of water forcing their way through a wash, carrying large logs, rocks, and muddy debris. Exactly the type of thing the governor wants people to be on alert for. Take seriously debris flows and floods, flash floods, lightning, possibility of tornadoes. Moscow denouncing Denmark's plans to provide F-16 jets to Ukraine, calling the action a, quote, escalation. It comes as Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky addresses the Danish parliament to thank the nation for their support. It's a major boost coming as the Netherlands also vowed to deliver dozens of F-16s to Ukraine, too. Nick Payton-Walsh joins us now from Zaporizhia, Ukraine. Nick, the truth is these are still going to take time. I was looking at hopefully the timetable from Denmark, six by the end of the year, eight next year, and then a further five. They've been a long time coming and the wait will continue a while longer. Yeah, look, I mean, it's important to point out that this has been a request Ukraine has had for months to enable them to increase their defences in the air. Now, it's also important to point out they've had Patriot systems. Those were considered a long shot when they were first requested. And now it seems to be the tempo of how Ukraine gets stuff after increased pressure. And it's fair to say here losses on the front line in the counteroffensive that is not moving as fast as anybody had hoped in Ukraine's favour. They do appear now to be seeing a public flurry of activity to get them F-16s. The Danish sending 19, the Dutch saying, well, we've got 42. Some of those are going to need to be used in training. We'll probably send quite a lot of the rest. I'm paraphrasing there. But this clearly a swift move after Ukraine's public statements last week that they weren't going to see anything this year at all. And possibly a reflection, too, of certainly European anxiety that if we don't see a change in the front lines here at some point in the months ahead, the Russians could dig in over the winter and the boundaries we're seeing right now of occupied Ukraine could remain that way potentially for years. So these F-16s, Ukraine says, would make a significant difference in the skies. I think it's fair to say from what we've seen uh, on the ground that uh, that would be the case. The biggest 
challenge now for Ukrainian troops is Russian air superiority, their ability to drop half metric ton bombs at will. F-16s could challenge that and could too deliver similar blows uh, to Russian front lines as well. But it isn't going to happen fast enough because... There's been a complex scheme suggested as to how this delivery could occur. The US doesn't really seem to want its hands on it directly. It would happen through European allies. Those European allies would do training in their nation countries. Some seems to be happening in the UK, Sweden possibly, maybe Romania down the line, Denmark, Netherlands involved now too. And then the supply of jets would be approved by the United States. Indeed, they've already said they will. It's a lengthy process, potentially four or five months worth of training of Ukrainian pilots. And then the ultimate question too, if indeed these planes get into the skies of Ukraine, who services them? It should be Ukraine, But it's complex. It's a huge lift for the Ukrainian Air Force, certainly. And there is the possibility during that that if they're going to keep the tempo up they need to make a difference, NATO may get more involved in servicing and training. That's my speculation. But that may be also one of the reasons why we've seen NATO move relatively slowly on this. But once again, when the pressure is there and too, frankly, the recognition of how important Ukraine superseding, sorry, succeeding in this war is for NATO's security, uh, that we see a, a public change. Whether this had been long planned, we may never know. But it's certainly now publicly moving at a, uh, at a pace and a certainty that we didn't see last week. Julia? Certainly. And uh, Nick, it's great insight. Uh, Still too many questions really to answer. Nick Peyton Walsh there from Zaporizhia, Ukraine. Now, North Korea has released new images of a cruise missile launched overseen by the country's leader, Kim Jong-un. While state media has not specified when this test took place, the release of the pictures comes just as the US and South Korea begin 10 days of joint military drills. Paula Hancocks has more from Seoul. As U.S.-South Korean joint military drills kick off this Monday until the end of the month, North Korea has been carrying out drills of its own. State-run media KCNA showed this Monday uh, pictures of Kim Jong-un, the North Korean leader, uh, overseeing what it called a drill of launching strategic cruise missiles from a Navy patrol ship. Now, according to state-run media, uh, it was a successful drill and he was said to be pleased that they are able uh, to react to any sudden situation. Now, JCS, the Joint Chiefs of Staff here, have uh, raised some doubts as to whether that report was in fact uh, exaggerated. But the fact that it was uh, broadcast today on the day that the US and South Korea carry out these military drills uh, is probably no accident. North Korea has consistently been angered by the joint military drills between the two allies. They they have said uh, in Pyongyang that they believe it's a dress rehearsal to an invasion, something the US and South Korea have denied. Now, what we also heard over the weekend on Sunday, South Korean police uh, say that there had been an attempt to hack domestic companies who were involved uh, in the uh, the drills itself between the US and South Korea. They say back in uh, February, malicious email attacks were attempted, uh, but they say that uh, security systems kicked in and they were unable uh, to access any military-related information. They say that they believe this was Kim Suki, which is a well-known North Korean hacking group that was behind it. Uh, and there has been another hacking attempt just last month surrounding these exercises that they are investigating. But yet again, a show uh, that North Korea does not want to be seeing these joint military drills. Now, we could well see more reaction from Pyongyang in the coming days. 
just at the end of uh, last week, the intelligence agency here uh, in South Korea said that they saw what they believe to be uh, activities suggesting there may be an ICBM launch, an intercontinental ballistic missile launch. Uh, They say they saw vehicle movement outside uh, production uh, facilities for missiles. So that is something that they are watching very closely. Paula Hancock's CNN Seoul. Now, it was being touted as a space race between India and Russia, with both nations launching missions to the moon in recent months. Well, now the race is over. Russia's first lunar mission in almost 50 years has failed. Its unmanned Lunar 25 spacecraft crashed into the moon's surface over the weekend. Fred Plankin joins us now with the latest. Fred, actually, Russia's vessel took such a trajectory that it overtook India's lunar lander, I believe, at one point as well. Mm. Do we know actually what happened here with the attempted landing? Yeah, so the Russians are saying, Julia, that there's certain things that succeeded actually on this mission. But then, of course, as we saw with that uh, lunar module crashing, uh, there were also other things that obviously didn't. Essentially, what the Russians managed to do uh, is very quickly, they managed to shoot up a rocket uh, with the lunar lander in it. And then they actually managed to get that lunar lander into the moon's orbit. So it was doing circles around the moon. However, in order to then land on the moon, it had to go into an elliptical orbit. And that seems to be where the error took place, either something with the boosters of the of the lunar lander or possibly some other miscalculation. Essentially, what the Russians say is that then that elliptical orbit that it had led it to crash into the moon itself. If you read the press release from the Russians, it's actually quite interesting. They say that the, uh, the, the lunar lander ceased to exist when it crashed into the moon's surface. And you're absolutely right. Right now, it's not a race anymore. At least it's a, a one-horse race, if you will, uh, with the Indians hoping to land their lunar module, uh, unmanned, of course, on the moon's south pole. That's the big thing about this, because they hope to possibly find water on the moon's south pole, which is, of course, the area of the moon that is in darkness all the time. Really a fascinating scientific progress uh, process there, uh, but the Russians no longer part of it. So for them, obviously, a pretty big setback as they really wanted to use moon exploration to kind of get back on the map, really, uh, of, of space exploration as well, Julia. Yeah, we'll see how well the, uh, the Indians do with their attempt and when the Russians can uh, relaunch. Fred, thank you. Fred Plank in there. Okay, coming up here on First Move, China's challenge, the world's second largest economy struggling under a growing property crisis. Do officials have the tools and the needed urgency to bring back stability? Expert perspective coming up. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. 
you need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome back to First Move. Call it the summer of China's economic discontent. The Chinese central bank today cutting interest rates for the second time in three months, though only slightly. Officials also unexpectedly keeping five-year interest rates unchanged. They're the peg for most mortgages in the country. Markets were expecting Beijing to offer more support for the property sector, which makes up around a quarter of the economy. Confidence suffering repeated blows. The giant developer Evergrande filed for bankruptcy protection last week. A smaller developer, Country Garden, has just weeks to make critical debt payments. And the state-owned firm Sino Ocean reporting debt troubles too. Then there were tense scenes played out last week outside a Chinese shadow bank. Investors demanding money said that they are owed. Shadow banks have been large investors in real estate and have enticed investors with high rates of interest return. Now to our next guest. These are just symptoms of China's investment-led, savings-driven economy, and he says it's struggling to find productive ways to grow without ramping up debt. Michael Pettis joins us now from Beijing. He's a professor of finance at Peking University and a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Professor Pettis, Michael, great to have you on the show as always. Um, we were just saying in the break, I don't think you're surprised by what we're seeing. It's perhaps the biggest surprise for for those that read your research, is that we haven't seen this sooner. What are we seeing in China in your mind? Well, we're, we're seeing a once very successful growth model that had become obsolete uh, around 10 or 15 years ago. But as has always been the case in countries that have followed this model, it's been very hard to shift into the new correct model uh, whatever that is. And as a result, we've seen significant imbalances build up. We've seen that particularly in the area of debt, but more and more non-productive investment, weaker domestic demand, etc. And that couldn't go on forever. At some point, we had to reach the limit. Um, either Beijing would decide to adjust the model or it would be forced to adjust the model it's, uh, uh, through through the, the changes in the economy. So that's starting to happen. That started to happen two or three years ago, and we are continuing to see that happen. I mean, some of the statistics for China are pretty mind-blowing. I think one that stands out is the fact that 45% of GDP is led by investment, and that would perhaps be to some degree less frightening if it was productive investment, if it was boosting the growth of the economy. But what you're saying is actually a lot of the investment, and we've seen it in the property sector in particular, it's, it's unproductive, and actually it costs more in terms of dollars of investment than the dollar of GDP growth that it creates, and that's where the wheels start to come off. Yeah, I'm, and, and I'm glad you brought that up. I think not enough people realize how extraordinary that investment number is. Typically, in a high-investing country, in a normal high-investing country, investment might reach 31, 32, 33% of GDP. In China, it's around 44, 45%, and that's down from its peak of 47 uh, several years ago. It's an incredibly high investment rate. Now, this made a lot of sense uh, 30 years ago when China was hugely underinvested. But 
um, as as investment grew so rapidly, it eventually reached about as much investment as it could productively absorb. And unfortunately, it's kept that very high level of investment. So as you mentioned, a larger and larger share has been going into into property, into uh, infrastructure spending, stuff that's basically not productive for the economy. I mean, there are limited ways really to grow an economy. You can invest, as we've been talking about. You can boost consumption and let consumers drive growth, as we see in the United States. Or you can run trade surpluses and sort of trade your your way into growth. Why for China are we getting to a situation? And I know you're saying, look, it's been building now for many years. Why are we getting to the point where actually you can't continue to invest Beyond the numbers, why can't China continue to expand its debt levels, particularly when a lot of it's self-owned, it's not internationally owned? There are those out there that make that argument that, look, China can get away with this. It can continue to do this. Yeah, those are people who I think don't really understand debt. You'll often hear people say that external debt is a problem, internal debt isn't a problem. But if you look at the two biggest debt problems of the last 100 years, the United States at the end of the 1920s and Japan at the end of the 1980s, it was all internal debt. There was no external debt. The problem is not so much the debt itself. The problem is, to be very technical, you're capitalizing what should be expense. So you take $100 and you invest it in something that creates maybe $60 worth of value. So you should take a $40 loss, but instead of taking that loss, you treat it as this $40 asset. And these sort of false assets have been continuing to build, or to put it in a different way, uh, um, uh, uh, local governments have billions of dollars on their books of assets, backing those billions of dollars of debt. But the assets aren't worth billions of dollars. They're worth much, much less. So there's a gap between the income coming from those assets and the need to continue servicing that debt. And that gap has to be met somewhere. Somebody has to take the loss. And the problem in China is there hasn't yet been a decision as to how that loss is going to be allocated. But one way or another, it will be allocated. Yeah, I mean, this is part of the challenge. You wrote a great piece about a year ago, um, looking at the five options that China has. The first was just keep going and allowing the debt to continue to expand. To The second thing was replace the non-productive investment with productive investment, AI, technology, climate finance. We're seeing it to some degree. You could replace it with consumption, build up the consumer, replace it with traders we've discussed, or do nothing and let grow dramatically slow. Uh, is the technology sector that we're seeing, and we obviously are seeing a lot of productive Productive investment, I think, big enough to switch from what they've done in terms of the property sector and the expansion there into that, at least yet. To me, it doesn't seem big enough. It, it clearly isn't. And that's where that 44, 45% number is very useful. Because if China were a rapidly, a normal, rapidly growing economy with a very high investment level in technology and in lots of other productive stuff, Uh, its investment share of GDP would be at best in the low 30s. And the fact that it's so much higher means that there's an awful lot of investment going into areas that simply make no sense. The technology sector, even in a country like the United States, is probably no more than 9% of GDP given 
pretty generous definitions. And in China, it's going to be much less than that. So you have to take a 10 to 15 percentage points of GDP from the infrastructure sector and funnel it into the, into the high tech or into productive sectors. And not only is that very difficult in and of itself, but these sectors already are flooded with capital. So it's not clear that adding even more investment is necessarily going to create any more productivity. Uh, every country says that it will do that, and none has ever been able to do that. And China's been talking about doing it for years, and, and clearly it's quite difficult to do. I was about to say, they're saying the same about trying to boost consumption, and that requires letting workers and citizens keep more of um, what they earn and, and what they produce. And I, I fear that sort of vested interests, political vested interests and economic sort of stand in the way of that. Michael, to your point about what happened to America in the 1920s and to what happened in, in Japan in the sort of 80s and 90s, is the only real option for China actually just to to do nothing here and watch growth dramatically slow? And what are the consequences of that, if so? In every one of the historical precedents, that's what happened. Either you had a, a very brutal contraction like the US in the 1930s, brutal but quick, or you had a very long, slow contraction like Japan after 1990, 1991. Probably the latter is worse economically, but the former is worse socially and politically. Now, there is something else China could do in theory. No one's ever done it, but at least it's theoretically possible. And that is if they were to transfer about one and a half percentage points of GDP every year from local governments, and local governments own a lot of assets, to the household sector, then in theory, we could get growth at around 4% and, and household income growing even faster than that. But the, the and, and many Chinese are now starting to talk about that. The problem is they're talking about one side of the transfer, transferring money to the household sector. No one's going to say no. But they're not talking about the other side of the transfer, which is transferring from some sector, in, in this case, probably local governments. And that's really the hard part, but that's not the part that we're discussing yet. We're simply discussing the transfer to part. Until we start discussing how those transfers are going to be funded, then it seems to me that it's still not very serious. Wow. And what happens in the interim, Michael? Um, I think uh, slower growth. You know, the growth rates in China, the sustainable growth rates in China are probably not much above two to three percent. As long as the government has targets well above that, as you know, this year uh, the target was five percent, then the only way to get there is by allowing debt at the local government level to build up and using that to fund, you know, more bridges. There was a very interesting article in the Wall Street Journal yesterday that discuss some of the infrastructure that Guizhou, one of the poorest provinces in China has, they have more airports than many of the richest provinces in China. It's hard to justify that. But it was an attempt to sort of spend your way out of poverty. And uh, one of the results is that Guizhou is probably the first uh, uh, province basically to go bankrupt. Uh, and so it's clearly not a sustainable policy. You can't you can't simply spend your way to higher growth rates 
unless you have infinite debt capacity, and clearly uh, no one has infinite debt capacity. Yeah, and the other thing you do is stop reporting the statistics when they, uh, they don't work for you, like youth unemployment. Michael, we will continue this conversation. Great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for your wisdom. Michael Pettis, Professor Bye-bye. of Finance at Peking University, sir. Thank you, and Senior Fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Thank you once again. Okay, still to come here on First Move, investing in the fight to reduce wildfires. I'll speak to the founder of the firm putting its money behind fire tech startups next. Welcome back to First Move. Southern California is reeling from catastrophic flooding and record-shattering rain from tropical storm Hillary. More than 25 million people from Southern California northward to northern Idaho are under flood watches. And as Hillary triggered flood warnings across Los Angeles, a 5.1 magnitude earthquake shook the area on Sunday afternoon too. Meteorologist Derek Van Dam joins us now. Derek, wow. What more can we expect from this? Uh, that video is just incredible uh, to imagine, to think that a, a, an earthquake at the same time as a tropical storm, that's something, right? Um, yeah. Look, let, let's, let's highlight some of the best video because I want to show you what's going on here. This is a mudslide, and you've seen this time and time again, but I have to highlight why these are so dangerous and how they actually form. Look at that debris that's being uh, rushed down the mountainside. I mean, sometimes these things, which, by the way, can travel over 50 kilometers per hour, they pick up bricks, they pick up boulders, they can pick up homes, vehicles, refrigerators, you name it. Anything in the path of the mudslide can get swept away, and it can easily outrun an individual who is trying to evacuate the area. So that is why they are so dangerous, and it's all stems from recent burn scars, right? So this is a problem that uh, is uh, a major concern in Southern California considering the fire activity over the past years. The rainfall actually uh, isn't absorbed into the ground like it normally is with a burn scar. So uh, the burn scar creates this almost a water repellent on the surface of the earth, and so it's easily for that water to slide off the top surface, similar to when rain falls on pavement. Now, this is the latest from Tropical Storm Hillary. Uh, Well, it's now post-tropical, losing its tropical characteristics. But one thing for sure, it's produced a lot of rainfall. And you look at some of these totals. I mean, these are mind-boggling. Now, they're in high elevations, but that's what makes this area so susceptible to the mudslides and the debris flows that I showed you just a moment ago. We still have several hundred thousand people under some sort of flash flood warning, even though the rain is subsiding for the greater Los Angeles area and into San Bernardino County, where uh, some of the worst debris flows and mudslides into uh, the San Bernardino County region were uh, just a few hours ago. Now, the storm system being swept by and to the north by a ridge of high pressure that's creating the heat over the central parts of the U.S. So we still have several hours of rain to go, but this stretches all the way from the border of the U.S.-Mexico region all the way to the U.S.-Canadian border. So this is where we're anticipating more rainfall today. Uh, And you can see that the bulk of it is coming to an end across Southern California. But any additional light showers could add more misery to the pain they're already experiencing. And, and Julia, you got to see, we are entering the peak of the hurricane season. And you can see just how active it is across the Atlantic Basin now. So we have to focus on this going forward. Yeah, just getting warmed up. And actually, your point about the Earth's inability to absorb some of the water is critical to our next conversation, too. So um, thank you very much for your wisdom. Derek Van Dam there. 
And as Hillary continues to move through the southwestern United States, President Biden and the First Lady are heading to Maui to meet with survivors, first responders and officials and see firsthand the devastation after the deadliest U.S. wildfires in the last century. The mayor of Maui says at least 114 people now have lost their lives. Another 850 people are still unaccounted for. And recovery crews are expected to find more victims as they search what's left of hundreds of destroyed homes. Officials say now 85% of the disaster area has been searched. And one company that knows a lot about wildfires is San Francisco-based Convective Capital, launched in 2022. The company is the first venture capital firm to focus solely on so-called fire tech startups, from drones and AI to innovative software for fire departments. And the need for finding solutions is more important perhaps than ever before. California's 10 largest wildfires have all happened in the past decade. And in 2020, 4.3 million acres of land were burned. And as the trees burned, they released as much CO2 as 24 million cars. Joining us now to discuss is Bill Clerico. He's the founder of Convective Capital. Bill, fantastic to have you on the show. There's a clear financial, human and environmental cost to these wildfires. And I think your message is technology can help address all of these things. Absolutely. I think technology has a big role to play in addressing this crisis. Certainly, we need a concerted effort across forestry, first responders, utilities, insurance, Um, But I think of technology as an accelerator uh, on all of those things. And and we're excited to be early stage investors in technology companies that can help solve this crisis. Yeah, there's a number of different ways as well. There's different stages here, isn't there? There's the mitigation of fires in the first place. There's trying to tackle the fires and recognizing them once they start and then even taking action to help provide support to first responders. I can see the sort of investments that you're looking at are across the board. Absolutely. You know, we look at our investments in three themes. The first is how can we restore landscapes to a healthier, more resilient condition? The second is how can we build towns and communities that are fire adapted, that can coexist with fire uh, in a safe way? And then the third is how do we prevent ignitions and safely and quickly respond to them? And our portfolio companies uh, you know, operate across those themes. We have aircraft companies that can help put out fires quickly. Uh, we have companies that help utility companies um, reduce ignitions. Um, we have inspection software for fire departments. So, so really technology can be a layer on, on many of these efforts, uh, no matter what category they're in. Okay, so we're showing some video now, which is labeled BurnBot. Talk to me about BurnBot specifically, because we're showing our audience now some of the examples of the investments that you've made in, in these startups. Sure. So BurnBot is a fantastic company based in the Bay Area. Um, they're using uh, automation and robotics to help do what's called prescribed burning. So one of the best tools we have uh, in the fight against extreme wildfire is actually fire. So we can, uh, in it well in advance of catastrophic high wind days under safe conditions, we can conduct burning to remove fuel from the landscape. And so BurnBot has a robotic device that can actually remove that fuel safely in a highly controlled way um, on a variety of days. And so it makes this process of prescribed burning much safer, much more efficient and much more predictable. So it's a really important tool, um, you know, in the fight against wildfire. We often talk about drones on this show in various different guises, but this was one of your other investments that caught my attention, RAIN, because these guys are actually looking at using drones to get to the fires even before the fire crews can to try and put those early flames out, which seems critical to me too and helpful. Yeah, and in a high wind fire, 
um, the fire actually grows exponentially. And so every minute really counts, particularly at the beginning phase of a fire. So you could see a future where autonomous drones could respond within minutes to a new ignition and containing that fire when it's a quarter of an acre or half an acre, as opposed to getting aircraft to it when it's already maybe hundreds of acres or thousands of acres. And so that ability to, to catch it quickly is a really big source of leverage that uh, can reduce fire risk. And they can even get out there when there are high winds. That doesn't sort of incapacitate them or limit their ability to get out there, because I guess that would be one of my first questions if I was asking yeah. a company ahead of investing. Sure. So, you know, I think like any technology, technology starts with basic capabilities and it gets better and better over time. So, you know, the initial version of their aircraft, uh, you know, has certain wind limitations and as they continue to grow and, and to improve, um, you know, they'll be able to operate in higher and higher wind conditions. And so I, I think, you know, we look at this technology journey as a five to 10 year journey. And how do we back these companies at the earliest stages, help them improve and grow to where they can address the totality of the problem? Yeah, I mean, that was going to be my next question. How long before some of these solutions are scalable, never mind profitable? You're looking at it, are you, over, as you said, a sort of five to 10 year horizon. How many of these things do you think will fall by the wayside in terms of, of your investments? You are at the very earliest stages of providing funding. Absolutely. So we're a $35 million venture capital fund. We invest one to $2 million at a time at the very earliest stages of, of these companies' inceptions. And so, you know, many of our companies uh, ultimately won't prove out or succeed, but but many will. And so I think that's the nature of venture capital. And, you know, given that we're a private investor, we can take, you know, a bunch of risk in a bunch of different categories and try a bunch of things, knowing that some's going to work and, and some won't. And, you know, we're excited to be able to, to bring that uh, to the ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, when I was prepping for this, I um, read a study and I don't even know that it's been peer reviewed, but it was looking at the California 2020 wildfires. And it basically said that the um, fires in terms of their carbon emissions erased all the gains that the state has made in industrial emissions or limiting industrial emissions since 2003. I mean, the environmental impact of, of what we're seeing here is so profound. Does a message like that help you raise money? For this fund, do you think there's been a sort of mind change in terms of climate tech and climate investment in particular, given all the environmental concerns? Absolutely. The, the carbon impact of wildfire is astounding. You know, the, the California statistics you cited are, are dead on. But also in Canada this year, um, there's research that's predicting that the emissions from wildfire will be double the rest of the country for this entire year. So you think about our work to decarbonize, to electrify, to reduce emissions in sort of in the industrial sector. If we could just stop extreme wildfire, it would have a massive and fast impact um, on uh, you know our overall global carbon emissions, which I think is a huge opportunity. Um, to your point, I think that that it creates economic opportunities for companies um, to think about carbon reduction and the business of carbon reduction, and and therefore helps you know folks like us raise capital um, to back that. Yeah, I mean, stats like that truly blow my mind. All the effort, all the investment, all the oxygen that's expended talking about trying to reduce emissions and something like this, which puts lives at risk in particular, is sort of wiping out those gains in certain countries. But bring it back to the United States and the Inflation Reduction Act, inappropriately named Climate Bill, that the United States struck. Was there enough in that in your mind to promote investment in this sphere specifically? Yeah, the Inflation Reduction Act and the bipartisan infrastructure framework did pass significant sums and historic sums of money for wildfire resilience, which is great. And those are starting to work their way 
um, through the system. You know, as we've studied those bills, we think that there's a massive step in the right direction, um, and yet there's still a lot more to go. We think it might be as much as five times the amount of money in those bills is actually what's needed to really treat the landscape at the scale that it needs to be treated. That being said, these were historic first steps in the right direction, and um, you know, those those bills are benefiting our companies and, and the various agencies that are tasked with solving this problem. Yes, diplomatic. I was waiting for the but. Five times more in terms of investment required. Bill, you're doing your part. We'll talk to some of these companies too and get the lowdown from them individually. We appreciate you and your time. Thank you. Thank you. Bill Carrico, the founder of Convective Capital. Okay, still ahead. America's loss, Denmark's gain. I'm talking about weight loss, thanks to the so-called wonder drug Ozempic and what impact it's having on the Danish economy. Next. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome back to First Move. And the first day this week of U.S. stock market trade is in play. And we've got a mostly higher open as the bulls try to bounce back from last week's losses. No Monday malaise for tech stocks. They are outperforming. As you can see in early trade, the Nasdaq up eight tenths of one percent. We've got more high profile tech earnings coming up later this week. Artificial intelligence chip maker NVIDIA reporting on Wednesday. Those shares are up almost 200 percent so far this year, driven by hopes that AI will become a major economic growth engine. And speaking of growth engines, the booming success of weight loss medication in the United States is having a major impact on Denmark's economy. Surging sales of the so-called wonder drug Ozempic is leading to lower interest rates and a strengthening currency. The Danish pharma giant Novo Nordisk, which produces the drug, has seen its stock market valuation skyrocket as a result of its sales. Anna Stewart joins us now. America's desire to be thinner is meaning that Novo Nordisk's profits (laughs) are significantly fatter, which is good news for them. But it's so huge. It's having an economic impact on the entire nation. It is absolutely extraordinary. This drug is selling like hotcakes. Just looking at their last results, it grew in terms of sales of this specific drug, grew 49% in the first half of the year. And it means that this drugs company is even more dominant and it already was in the Danish economy. And if we look at the market cap of Novo Nordisk and the uh, competitors, the other big companies in Denmark, you can see that. I mean, it is more than 10 times bigger than the second biggest company. And actually, if you add those four companies you see blow it together, that's still less than a third of the market cap of Novo Nordisk. Now, 
it has been big for a long time, but the drug that we're talking about has really boosted what we're seeing here. Hugely successful. And so many of those sales, of course, are overseas, particularly in the United States. And that means a lot of US dollars being converted back into Krona. Now, a note from Danske Bank last week was really interesting. It was saying that essentially this is pushing up the value of the krona uh, versus the euro, but the two currencies are pegged. So this feeds into interest rate decisions for the central bank. And actually, looking at the Danish central bank, the main interest rate is around half a percent lower than the ECB. I'm sure many Danes are happy about that. I know where I would rather have a mortgage right now. I was about to say, if you're a borrower, that's really great news. (laughs) Um, One word or maybe two. Nokia. (laughs) Finland. We've seen how this story can end. Having all your eggs or one massive egg in your economic basket isn't always a good thing. Finland's economy very much rose and fell with the fortunes of Nokia. So there is a risk there. And just taking those interest rates, for example, do you want to see a company have a turn of fortune? Then suddenly you might have to pay more for your mortgage. I would say, though, with Novo Nordisk, it's not a one trick pony. This is a company with hugely successful drugs in the past, plenty more in the pipeline. So even if a competitor does come out with a rival drug that's even more successful in dense sales, I don't think we'll see a huge reversal in terms of the fortunes of this particular company. It's been dominant in the Danish economy for ages. In fact, in December, Julia, it will be turning 100 years old. Wow. I was about to say, I was just looking at some of the revenues for this. $6 billion for its weight loss drug. And, and, a, and a collection of analysts on FactSet think that revenue figure surges to around $15 billion annually by 2027. So um, mm-hmm, I'm sure there's competitors with other options coming, brewing. But still, Anna Stewart, thank you for that. Okay, still ahead. From turmoil to title winners, Spain overcomes all the hurdles and the odds to win their first Women's World Cup how they triumphed over England in the final. History in the making. Spain celebrating winning the Women's World Cup for the first time ever. It was a 1-0 victory in the final on Sunday over the reigning European champions, England. And it was a hard-fought win for Spain, who overcame internal disputes and a lack of playoff experience. None of that mattered. Amanda Davis joins us now from Sydney, where the final was played. Boo for England, Amanda, but I cannot take anything <laughs> away from Spain. They deserved this win, a mixture, I think, of success and sadness, too, for some of these players. Yeah. Very much, um, Julia. And it's a victory that I think a lot of people feel is absolutely deserved for the players and the fans. They were very much the best team. Serena Wiegmann, the England coach, uh, said that uh, after the match amidst her disappointment, of course, of having been beaten in a World Cup final twice in a row after having led the Netherlands there in 2019. We know that these players are some of the most talented in world football. Um, It was Bonmati who was named player of the tournament. They have a two-time Ballon d'Or winner, Alexia Puteas, 19-year-old Salma Paraleluo, who uh, really wrote so many headlines over the course of this campaign. And they did what they needed to do when it mattered on the biggest stage of all. But... The fact that they have won this tournament does not stop the questions being asked about some of the management 
practices uh, and the support that is offered to the players by the Spanish Federation, particularly if the players continue to ask those questions. You might remember it was a few months ago ahead of the tournament that 15 players wrote a letter to the Spanish Federation complaining about the treatment they felt they were uh, they were being subjected to but the federation stood by their coach Jorge Vilda and he is the man who has led them to this women's world cup success uh, Alexia Puteas though today has said perhaps FIFA needs to stop and listen because there are many different federations in world football with issues going on at the moment aren't there and it feels to me like this final was re a really telling point in where we are with this women's game. England and Spain have set a new benchmark. This was the most competitive Women's World Cup today. The football has been fantastic. The records it has broken have been spectacular. It's the first Women's World Cup to, to break even. $570 million in revenue is the figure that is being talked about. But for everything they've done, there are still the issues that need to be resolved. England with the commercial payments and bonus payments, the dispute yeah. with the Football Association, Spain with the coaching issues. Um, you know, there is still a long way to go, but I think there's a, a whole lot more people on board after the last few weeks. Yes, and hopefully they're more powerful now to fight for the things that um, they deserve and need. And Amanda, I believe you're now done. I hope there's a glass of wine and a bed and a long sleep and safe travels home <laughs> in your future. You've been amazing over this tournament. Thank you for joining us today. Amanda Davis there from Sydney. And that's it for the show. Connect the World is up next. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.